This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Welcome to Community or Chaos, friends. And it feels like there's more community uh, chaos in the world than community right now. But, um, but do, do our best to build community. Today we have... Bromlin Hayward, who is a uh, coordinating lead author for the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change, reports on cities and infrastructure. And she is a re- part of a director of the University of Canterbury's Sustainable Citizen and Civic Imagination, Hai Putiwangi. Research group. I'm probably mismurdering the Maria. I apologize. Fine, no, that's fine. Yep. Could you briefly talk about um, why you became interested and involved in the field of climate change? Oh, kia ora. Thanks so much for inviting me, Marvin. I know what you mean about the feeling of chaos, but community is so important. And uh, thanks for the discussion. I. I've always been interested in climate. Um, When I was growing up, my father was a hydrologist and then a resource management engineer. So we spent a lot of time in um, flooded rivers, I think, as kids growing up. In fact, I thought that that was kind of like a normal childhood till I was old enough to have sleepovers at other people's houses and realised that families didn't go away in major storm events. But... um, As a political scientist, I've been really interested in two things, interested in how we maintain democracy through a changing um, climate and through disruptions, whether they are the earthquakes, natural disasters, economic declines. My concern is really how do we ensure that children have a democratic future as well as a sustainable one? So that's one of the kind of key reasons why as a political scientist, I was really thinking about climate change quite a lot. Well, it's obvious that your um, concerns have really come to the fore in the last uh, few months and weeks, not only about climate change, but also about democracy in the last couple of years. So, well, friends, first I'm going to mention that you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community Chaos, and you'll be able to podcast this uh, shortly after it goes on air. Well, you've 
Why did you, how did you become a member of the IPCC panel? Uh, I was originally working for the um, International Social Science Council. Um, we were serving on a committee that was looking at how we could make far-reaching social and economic transformations, and we were um, reviewing funding applica um, research applications and community projects globally. And I think it was through, um, through the Social Science Foundation, I'd also spent some time with the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change at the University of East Anglia and, um, and was working um, with colleagues in Norway as well on issues for children and climate. And uh, the Social Science Council, I think, initially put my name forward. And then I think it was the government of France. <laughs> so I kind of ended up in a roundabout way that way. Uh, and I've been working more on the, while I've taken a, a strong interest in the New Zealand chapters and sections, I work more on the overall report. So um, my role in the report that we've just had out is uh, leading the chapter on cities and infrastructure with two international colleagues and a wonderful team of about um, 15 authors and about another 50 contributing authors. Um, Prior to that, I worked on the 1.5 report for, for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and I'm on their committee that is their core writing team. So there's about 30 of us that are writing sort of synthesis reports. So how the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change works is that the United Nations um, Environment Program and the World Meteorology Office set it up about 30 years ago. Um, and every six years, it does a, a sort of a grand stock take of what's the state of international knowledge on climate. And it's both the physical science, the issues around the adaptation and the issues around mitigation. But increasingly, um, they've been trying to bring and integrate these reports together because it doesn't make sense to separate mm. the work. And so countries and science teams nominate scientists, then we work as volunteers. There's a small paid secretariat and technical support that works out of Germany and um, Bonn, actually, um, and they work for the UN as a kind of a, a committee and there's a, a series of elected officials, but the vast majority of the thousands of us who are scientists volunteer our time. All right. Well, I think the next couple of questions will be about how we approach climate change, if that's all right. Sure. I think there's often been, in, in the English-speaking countries, the primary debate's been around, climate change has been around the so-called tragedy of the commons and the idea that the resources and environment are best so served by the market and private ownership. What is the social theory of the tragedy of the commons in, are there social and scientific field studies which give evidence against the validity of this theory? Um, yes, it's really interesting that you should uh, talk about that. So um, Garrett Hardin, the um, ecological economist, um, and at the time a very strong Christian in his own um, beliefs, uh, was writing during the Cold War. And there's a, a wider story which is, fascinating from a political science point of view about why he wrote his really influential piece, The Tragedy of the Commons, because it was part of a wider narrative of trying to show that Western 
uh, liberal market-led economies were morally um, superior to the closed Soviet approach uh, of state ownership. Um, but at a simple level, um, what he was arguing in his paper was that um, if you had a farmer has a, several farmers are sharing a field and they've all got cows on it grazing, then there's an incentive for every individual farmer to overgraze that pasture. And the tragedy is that the pasture is depleted as farmers uh, don't cooperate in order to um, preserve it into the future. And the, the best ways to preserve it is either a kind of a draconian rule system or using private property rights. Uh, and so he was a strong advocate for private property rights. But since then, there's been enormous critique. And one of his strongest um, critics has been Eleanor Ostrom, who is the first political scientist and woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize in economics for her work on, um, on a common pool resource theory. And her argument is that there are centuries of um, evidence and many communities that have managed to manage common land, not necessarily using only private property rights, but using a whole series of ways in which we communicate and cooperate to ensure that uh, communities share resources cooperatively, that we're not all competitive and desperate to outdo each other, that we can actually live uh, compatibly and that communities can sort their own ways out for managing resources. At a wider level, there is a concern amongst many that um, nations still want to exploit um, their opportunities to use fossil fuels and coal and to be um, and will do so unless there's some way that we can actually restrain each other. But ironically, the, the way we've done it is voluntary. I mean, in 2015, all the world's governments agreed that climate change was an issue. And yes, Trump's America pulled out, but they actually didn't pull out at the time because they dis were disagreeing with climate. They were disagreeing with the cost that it would present to America to actually protect the environment. Um, one country, I've just forgotten which one, was at war at the time, is not, uh, had not been a signatory, but it, that's a major, major um, shift from when we think 10 years ago, they were still disputing whether or not climate was real, climate change was real. And, and that in itself, there was no coercion on the governments to, to agree. Uh, it, it was a major step forward. And things like this report, I mean, it's extremely frustrating that progress is so slow. But I find it remarkable that in the latest report that we've just presented, the adaption and mitigation and, I mean, the adaption and vulnerability report, 195 governments have signed up and agreed to its summary, which says very strong things like our resource exploitation has been driven by processes like colonization, that the uh, impacts of climate are issues of human rights and they're issues of climate justice. And all governments, including China and Russia, signed that and signed that language off. Now, that sets a really different tone for the way in which we will address climate issues in the future and issues of liability and, um, and issues of culpability. So it is a significant shift, even if it feels like it's taking such a long time. Okay, could you talk about 
Naomi Klein's contributions to the climate change debate? Naomi Klein has been extremely important um, as a commentator, socially and politically. Um, one of the things that she had really done in um, in shock doctrine in particular, well, first in No Logo, um, raising the issues around our obsessions with consumer culture and uh, and our consumption culture in the West, but her work around um, the shock doctrine, thinking about the way in which after disasters, there is a tendency to suspend democracy and to um, rush through unpopular legislation has been incredibly important. And um, in her recent discussions, she's been really shining a light on the wider debates that are happening about, you know, can we continue to support a growth economy? Obviously, in developing economies and in poor countries, you, communities desperately need the opportunity to develop. But in many countries, it's not bringing greater happiness. Uh, it is not actually um, creating a greater spread of wealth. We need to be thinking more carefully about how we measure progress beyond GDP. So there are many ways in which Klein has both captured, advanced and um, echoed the current debates. And so too have authors like her work, like Rebecca Solnit, with her Paradise Built in Hell and her reflecting on um, hope in the darkness. Can we de talk a bit about development and what it means? Because there are some countries that have developed enormous resources, particularly in things like oil and coal, and it's been more like hell than grace. And then there's countries like Kerala. It's not a country, it's a province, in, in, a state in India, where they've developed uh, both more sustainable, they've developed education, including for women, they've developed health care. We have very few resources, really. They've been willing to tax their people and tax corporations in Carlisle, but they've developed in a more society-friendly and I think environmentally-friendly way than is normal. There's um, several ways to think about what well-being means and um, how we achieve well-being. And I find it very interesting if we think of how order of the of the total health of our communities. Um, the New Zealand well-being budget was scoffed at for being um, kind of a, a light once over look at well at kind of another way of thinking about the good life in a sort of a middle class or a kind of a shallow way. But there's something quite significant when a country actually starts beginning the conversation about how do we measure our progress in ways that are outside just economic growth. I think one of the things that I've found um, challenging and interesting and important about the climate debate is that it isn't clear always who, there aren't clear goodies and baddies. So for instance, after the COP26 uh, talks in Glasgow that we've just had, India received a lot of international criticism for its last minute request that had the British negotiator cry on the, on the uh, podium, um, their last minute request that instead of phasing out unabated coal, that the world agreed to phase down 
um, the use of unabated coal. That means um, using coal where you're not actually in some ways trying to think about how to at least capture some of its out, um, its side, its worst side effects at least. And there was a lot of vilification of India for that position, but India reflects a very interesting and difficult argument that won't go away by just saying people are wrong. Um, their argument is that many of the countries that are developed and developed economies, the large industrial countries that expanded in the 1890s to the 1950s and 60s and 70s have expanded using fossil fuels. That's had an enormous legacy effect and that there is a climate justice issue that needs to be considered for newly developing economies like India, like China, uh, like um, many of the developed uh, developing world where people are desperately trying to get ahead. There is some hope that we could provide a lot more finance and India is constantly asking for more finance uh, for technology to be able to leapfrog some of the worst of the heavy carbon. India wants to continue to use many of its um, coal-fired uh, sources of power. Um, the war in Ukraine has created a similar kind of moral dilemma for governments. They don't want to be beholden or reliant on, um, on Russian fossil fuels. They have a choice really whether they invest more in renewables or whether they develop their own domestic or closer um, diverse sources of supplies for fossil fuels. These are really, really difficult questions. I mean, if they'd been easy, we would have fixed climate ages ago. These are really difficult questions about what countries need as support and what big investors are prepared to um, sacrifice or how we're prepared to regulate the really big investors as well. Are we prepared to regulate really big investors? Well, I think there are two sides to that. Um, domestically, I found the whole debate about um, the cost of our fuel after the Ukraine war really depressing. Um, it is absolutely fair enough in the same way that it's fair enough to recognize that countries are at disadvantages. It is fair enough to recognize that the most vulnerable are the most affected by climate change and the transitions away from fossil fuel use. So if you haven't got a lot of money and you haven't got a lot of access to public transport, you're working night shifts, you're having to travel at odd hours, um, then the car is one of your only options. And if it's petrol driven, then it's costing you a lot. So we do actually need to think about the fairness of that. I feel there's quite a different argument if you drive an enormous SUV or you've had your midlife crisis and you've bought your flash car and you're just upset that it's costing you more to, to fuel it. That's a different set of conversations. Um, and I think that probably I was pleasantly surprised that the government's recent move to both cut fuel taxes was accompanied by such a strong uh, statement about halving the price of public transport. Because as we continue to electrify the private car fleet, fuel taxes will be difficult to justify anyway. They'll become increasingly a regressive tax on the poor. People are stuck with their old petrol cars while 
richer families can swap over to an electric and not be affected at all. So um, it is crucial that we are democratising and improving our public transport at the same time. That, fits, that gives me a bit of hope. That fits it's, in with our same thing with people who are able to have um, wind farms or uh, photoelectric uh, uh, batteries on the roofs so they can become independent of electricity. And it may actually become more expensive for those who can't afford to do those kind of things. That's one of the things that the IPCC report is interesting about. There's a next report that comes out at the um, beginning of April that will be looking at how to cut emissions fairly and effectively. But this one's looking at adaptation. And um, and one of the things I was struck by is that the research is showing that if you encourage individuals to take individual adaptive action, which includes mitigation, uh, things like putting your solar panels on your roof, and you don't think of a way of making collective um, benefits and solidarity out of that, then you get some very weird, what we call maladaptation outcomes or less than desirable outcomes. So people start digging trenches and building um, walls around their own properties to protect them, which then encourages flooding in other areas. It's much better to have a community solidarity solution to these collective problems than to let the individuals or the market try and kind of muddle through. So land use planning in particular has come through as a very strong way in which communities and governments can ensure that there is at least some fairness and some effective protections for communities uh, in a changing climate. Okay. Your report talks about um, cities and infrastructure. You have something you'd like to say about that? Well, I didn't know a lot about infrastructure before I began as a political scientist. Uh, I am married to a mechanical engineer, I should say, but I hadn't really spent a lot of time. Uh, I should have spent more time at, here at the University of Canterbury with my civil engineering colleagues. But I found the whole debate fascinating. So one of the things that this report has shown is that around the world, uh, a lot of cities have started to develop plans to protect their communities but very few of them have actually implemented them. And the kind of action that they have implemented is pretty small scale, and it's pretty much focused on the grey physical infrastructure, things like sea walls, putting in sea walls and trying to put in emergency sirens, that kind of action. The difficulty is that um, those actions used on their own can exacerbate the problems that we've got. So, for instance, if you're just putting in a seawall, um, it protects that immediate bit of beach. It can it can actually encourage erosion down the coast. Most stage one geography students will know that. And it also has a moral hazard that people start building behind it in a potentially very vulnerable situation where they shouldn't be. But the research is showing that actually if we combine... Um, taking that physical action with working with nature. So thinking about how we plant uh, green space in cities to ensure that we are not only providing shade, um, but also providing areas that can soak up flood space um, and, and act as sort of an important buffer. That's an important thing to do to, together with what they're calling social infrastructure, which is ensuring that communities have good insurance, 
medical support, education and income replacement. All the things that we've kind of seen are important after the earthquakes or important after COVID here in New Zealand and globally, um, that people need to have those social protections in place as well, or their suffering is so much worse. So we don't always think about those as preventative actions. Have we been doing have we been doing well in the last no, for the last thirty years? <laughs> terrible. We, especially in New Zealand, we've talked a big game, but we're one of the few countries that our emissions have just continued to climb. Um, I think we're the second highest mm. uh, per capita at the moment. Um, Do we so, need social so- yeah. solidarity to actually improve our uh, cutting back on fossil fuels? Well, I think we can, although I I was Do we actually need it for that? I mean, can we actually actually get people to come along if there's huge gaps between incomes and people's situations? Mm. I think it is always a challenge. Like we've seen with um, COVID, that the harder that you push people, the more difficult their situations, the more tense the debates become, and the last parts of the really critical debate becomes can become quite divisive. And but we're already at the situation where we have to take um, collective action. We don't have any other options. Um, you can try and build your little remote eco-friendly house that is far away from everybody else, but you will still be affected by a change in climate. Our nature solutions will not work as effectively after 1.5 degrees of warming. And after two degrees of warming, we're really not sure what will happen. You will still be affected by massive flooding and drought and fire events, and you will still need community support in that situation, no matter how wealthy you are. But the poorest are going to, and disabled, ethnic minorities, indigenous communities are the most directly affected. But what this report that's just come out is showing is that 3.6 billion people are highly vulnerable to climate change. So this is a real issue now. And we can pretend it's not coming We've seen how difficult it is to get solidarity action, even when we have a pandemic that is sweeping the world, that we can watch what's happening. We still have people saying, oh, should we open the economy? Should we close our borders? You know, those debates are still difficult. They won't go away. But the great thing about the kind of solidarity that you need for climate change is that unlike the solidarity for actions that we needed to protect each other in COVID, like masking up, keeping socially distant, all those things which make our lives more difficult, the kinds of social solidarity support that we need to deal with climate make our life more pleasant. We're living in closer community with people we care about in a 15-minute ideal walking uh, distance to the kinds of services that we need, and we have mutual support. Um, In many ways, that has huge health benefits. It has huge mental mental health and physical benefits, as well as social. So many of the solutions to climate change are not as scary as you think. Mm. Don't you have to convince people, not only through kind words, but through action, that they count, that that everybody counts, not just those who are well-educated or those who have uh, a comfortable living, but 
everyone counts. Yeah, I think one of the um, most I mean, can you really talk about solidarity when you um, are going to cut taxes for the rich? Mm. I was just going to say, one of the most discouraging debates is um, is the debate about taxation cuts at a time when, and um, and actually bringing back offshore oil and gas um, my, uh, mining, offshore oil and gas ex- exploitation in New Zealand, because I think social solidarity will take on a different um, immediacy when countries, governments, and individual boards are sued for their contributions to climate change, which is increasingly likely. And particularly the liability that boards have. The thing that I've been surprised about that has changed in the last two years is the number of businesses that have invited me to speak. Businesses that I hadn't thought about in New Zealand as being interested in climate. And what's encouraged them is that when they've done their standard surveys of staff and workforce, people have said, well, we think your gender policy needs a bit of work, but, you know, we really want you to do more on that, but we particularly want you to do more on sustainability. We think your climate policies are terrible. And I've been surprised how many business managers have been startled at the way in which it's been their workforce that's pushed them to make a difference. It's not going to solve everything, but it is a signal Mm. that things are gradually changing. The other big issue is to try and get well-meaning grandparents who find this really too hard to talk about or who think, look, I'm okay, uh, and really this is a bit exaggerated, that this is not exaggerated, that within the next five to ten years, it will become more and more serious for the children that you're leaving behind. A child born this year by the time they are 80, can expect four times the level of severity of storms, um, wildfires and droughts in their lifetime that 80-year-olds currently have experienced. That's enormous. We don't, that's not well known. No, and I think morally that's something that's very hard for people to accept. Do you think the science itself has been too cautious about telling us about the, the actual dangers? No, I think if anything, we're at risk of a bit of climate porn, like we carry on and on talking about how terrible it is, everybody switches off. I think our problem is particularly, I'm quite critical of groups, I'm afraid I am quite critical of groups like Extinction Rebellion, because, especially the British model, because um, very privileged people are sort of saying, oh, this is all terrible, and particularly the movements led by thinkers like Jed um, Blenfeld, who uh, fell, who are arguing it's all too late, all we can do is grieve. Actually, we haven't got that right. We have had a very privileged life. It is now our responsibility to take action. But there are communities, indigenous communities, Pacific communities, communities in Africa, women, civil rights movements, who have seen existential crises before. We're not privileged in the fact that this is a really terrible thing about to help happen to us. There are many communities that have experienced this, and and they didn't have a choice. They just had to take mm-hmm. action, and so do we. There are countries in Africa where people from the ground up have planted trees. Yes, and that's laudable, and I find it really I'm moving when I'm approached by um, young 
activists in Nigeria, in um, Bangladesh, um, in most of um, that part of Asia, Africa, that's most exposed to risk, how much effort they're doing. But one of the things that we have to think about is that planting trees, a point that's made in the report in Chapter 9 in the Africa section is that the global north is flying and having our holidays and continuing to live our lifestyle that we want. And we are trying to carbon offset that by buying trees and planting programs in Africa in particular that is Mm. distracting from the main focus in terms of securing Mm. water and securing food that uh, many communities need to do. I was thinking of an older age group in Africa, women in particular, who started planting trees almost before climate change was well known. I was thinking what poor communities have sometimes done. Yeah, and I think um, when you think about the um, uh, the tree planting movements that have happened, they've been in Kenya, for instance, led by women. Um, they've been extremely important. There's a project that I know of in a village called Sikles in Nepal where um, a large number of the um, community leaders also happen to have been students at Lincoln University while I was there and I went back recently and I find it really heartening because over 25 years, I mean, at the time that they started in this community, it had been stripped of trees for um, home heating and fuel um, and cooking fuel and it was subject to landslides. It had really serious cholera and surge related issues. It had no education system and it was a very remote and isolated community really struggling and now while it's struggling again with COVID the turnaround in the community is amazing and I remember asking Man Gurang who is the um, mayor well now the now the regional councillor for the area you know where do you begin when you face with so many multiple crises at the same time I just couldn't imagine what you'd start with And he had actually started, they started with planting trees, which stabilized slopes, which made the community feel more confident about the recommendations that were wider about piping water, improving sewage systems, and just all of those small gains over time done well has made an enormous difference. And I think it's things like that, a project in India in the center of New Delhi, which I'm very aware of that's happened for 25 years, has made a really significant difference. But the major contribution that the rest of the world now needs to make is to cut back our admissions and finance those innovations locally as well because now the bigger climate changes, just like COVID, can put those projects back a very long way and they are have achieved extraordinary things at the local level. Okay, I'll have a piece of music now and then we'll come back. <laughs> Crack fills the earth like a single rifle shot But no one's there to hear the beginning of the end of the world Crack spreads through ice, it's like an axe through dry wood It opens up a chasm between what is happening and what should 
Because if the ice south will tumble into the warming sea And the oceans they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me uh-huh. And no machines on earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface Greenhouse is calling, greenhouse is warming The earth has given notice, she has given her final warning One thing we must do is to support our politicians Whenever they take steps to remedy this situation We must reduce the use of carbon We must do what must be done And meet the needs of this growing world By harvesting the wind and the sun Cause if the ice shelf will tumble Into the warming sea On the planet's warming surface Greenhouse is calling Greenhouse is warming The earth has given notice She has given Her final warning Her final warning Cause if the ice shop will tumble Into the warming sea and the oceans, they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me. Uh-huh. And no machines on earth will stop it. No cunning of the scientists. Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface. Greenhouse is calling. Greenhouse is warming. The earth has given notice, she has given her final warning, her final warning. A crack fills the earth. It's like a single rifle shot but No one's there to hear The beginning of the end Of the world Oh friends, that was for those who will come Final Warning by Simon Kirk um, and the Acoustic Junkies. Final Warning, you've just heard. We're talking with um, Romlin Hayward, who's one of the co-writers of the IPCC report on climate change. Uh, we were talking about um, 
mitigation and adoption. What I think one of the problems we've had with getting particularly large users of coal and oil and also the people who provide it is that we've often thought in terms of individual action. I'll, I'll get an electric car, I'll plant trees, I'll recycle. And maybe we should have been thinking more about I'll lobby my MP or I'll uh, write in the, paper, in the letters in the paper about how the government and corporations should do more to mitigate climate change. That it's a political, overall, it's a political economic problem in its heart. And it hasn't been challenged that way by many people. It's been challenged as an individual household problem. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think that one of the issues is that, um, particularly for children and young people who I work with a lot, over the last 30 years, our big focus on neoliberalism, on the liberalization um, and of decision-making through market and private se- sector leadership and individual um experiences and voice has led to a kind of two-edged sword. On the one hand, you have now a generation who feels very strongly that they have to make the difference individually. And that is an enormous um, burden to carry when these decisions are collective and they have to be acted on collectively. So it is important that we have individuals who take moral responsibility and who do show that it is possible to live a good life, consuming less, living enough, um, leaving space for others, making moral choices um, and enjoying your life well. I mean, it matters that you see people in your community that you respect and like who live like that. But at the same time, that can become an enormous barrier to students and people who are struggling on incomes where they feel like they just they would love to have an electric car they would love to take the bus but it just doesn't work it's not available it's too expensive Uh, they can't buy the organic food all of those kind of issues and it becomes um, also a kind of an enormous burden for young people that they feel that they can't achieve everything and we get this incredible sense of eco-anxiety that it's all too much Robert Bullard the civil rights um an environmental justice campaigner in the States has a lovely description of this. And he he says, you know, tackling climate is not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's a relay marathon across generations. And while we have to act quickly to try and make a difference to the climate in the short term, these are going to be major lifestyle and Um, economic investment decisions and ways of organizing our society that are going to take time over generations. So sustaining your efforts, working in a cross-generational way, and just like the way Naitahu talks about the seven generations to get the treaty settlement and the next generations to come, this matters crucially. So that working across generations, that feeling part of something bigger than yourself is also crucial. What do you say to people who've been involved in the environment movement, particularly environment movement, and now say, well, it's too late, so why bother? Why drive yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I mean, that is, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. You, 
it makes me very disappointed and angry, to be honest, because <laughs> there's two things. One is that there is a cynicism that comes from burnout, and there is another kind of a pessimism that is self-fulfilling. That's what I meant about, you know, we don't actually have the right to determine the future. It's a bit like telling a patient that they have a, a terminal illness doesn't mean you know exactly when they're going to die. And other communities have experienced these existential crises before. If you think about the Pacific, um, think about a community like the Cook Islands, you know, the population had fallen to to 15 people in some small towns after the effect of influenza and the blackbirding slave trade from, um, from Europe. And though that community has had to rebuild itself. Now, this isn't to say that indigenous communities have to be endlessly resilient and endlessly adaptive to the impacts of colonization, but it just is to say to the environment community, myself included, be a bit more humble. You know, we're not the only people that have experienced horrendous things. Countries are going through war right now. People have gone through enormous injustice. You still maintain that ability to affect change over time and that sense of critical hope, um, that ability to understand how serious the situation is, but act anyway. Mm-hmm. Not sitting grieving grieving for what you've lost, but actually acting to ensure that the loss is not as great for those who to come. Isn't that what, why hope is so important? That if we really have hope, we won't stop. Yeah, and I think it's not, I don't it's mean not that, that kind of Pollyanna kind of just do anything. It is Critical uh, hope, or my colleague sure. John Barry calls it radical hope, manawa ora in Māori, that ability to know how serious something is and take the act of faith of doing the work anyway. I mean, you, in a way, if you really believe the universe is a friendly place and that life has meaning, you've got to carry on, don't you? Yeah, but I think think the having to and the got to kind of can be a really big burden. Like, um, the situation is what it is. It is a very challenging situation, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. Some colleagues were talking to me before we presented this report, and they were speaking from Africa, and they said, look, just remember that at the moment climate is not – our government, this is from a particular country in Africa, it's not our government's top priority. It's not their second, third, or even fourth priority. At the moment, um, unemployment rates are soaring above 30%. Uh, undocumented deaths uh, from COVID are enormous. Situations of corrupt governance are enormous. So give us solutions and actions that we can manage now that will benefit our communities is what we're really looking for and I think it is that case of thinking about the immediate issues that are confronting people and still hold that long view how do we support a community Mm. now but keep our long view and that's quite hard in an electoral system that works every three years where we're suddenly being promised tax cuts but I have a faith that conservatives as well as liberals um, well, conservatives as well as progressives, I should say, 
both share a strong interest in legacy and both share an interest in what we are creating to leave behind. And I think it's finding that common ground, the, the action that will be enough that will shift us is what we need right now. In a way, if we take action like having the bus fares, which mm-hmm. benefits so many people that, that can't afford electric cars, can hardly afford cars, That creates two things. It creates a, a, something that says we're all important. It also says this is a way of having a future where we're mitigating climate change and we're building for a future that will deal with climate change. I'm not saying... And look after people. Yeah. yeah. I you agree entirely. To, you must connect those somehow. Yeah, and I think even if people don't connect them immediately... I'm very grateful that uh, transport has. I think that actually they've been thinking very hard about this. I saw that there was a debate from the, um, you know, perhaps we could return all the emissions trading scheme money or um, fuel tax to individuals. But again, the problem is that the research shows that it's the collective investments that make the biggest difference. If you just give people individual money, they can't use it in a way that's going to protect them or reduce climate effectively. So public transport is a really, really good example of of a very big difference we could make very quickly. What other things can you think of that we can do that will have similar effect? I think certainly thinking about tree planting in um, low-income neighbourhoods is quite critical, and thinking about increasing the social income for our lowest uh, children that are in most poverty, those are the communities and families that are going to be at most risk in climate. So they're not things that we think of as immediately climate-related policies of raising social mm. income, but it matters. I think another really easy solution is to lower the voting age to 16. That isn't going to say that all 16-year-olds are going to vote for a better climate or they're going to vote green. In fact, many of them will vote conservatively and they'll vote like their parents. But guess what? Adults do that too. They vote like their partners. They vote like their employers. They vote like their peers. The difference is that all political parties will have an incentive to be thinking about a slightly longer term. And it sends a very clear signal that we are not just expecting business as usual politics. So that's a difficult one in terms of shifting public opinion, but it's an easy one in terms of actually making it happen. It only affects 172,000 people. We could do it tomorrow. We could bring in um, the votes at 16 immediately, and it would change our conversations. I think... um, Other things that we could do very simply and quickly is that we could um, reduce our methane levels, reduce our expectation of uh, grazing stock levels. We could, um, but we, in, in order to do that, we actually have to think about how we effectively support the farming industry to transition out of dairy. And while that's not popular, it's just the same as the oil industry. As a country, we sent many price signals to tell people to move into the dairy sector. They're now in high debt. Uh, They may be making large profits, but many aren't. Many are exposed to significant debt. And so if we want to move out of that industry into something that has less methane and is less um, exposed in a changing climate, but still produces agricultural uh, exports and food, then we need to support that in ways collectively. So just starting to change the conversation that we have got 
creative uh, solidarity solutions makes a big difference. You're also changing the conversation about economics when you do that. Exactly. Um, and, you know, we, we question growth at our peril, as my lovely colleague Tim Jackson at the University of Surrey says, but it is important that we say, how much do you really need? Jeanette Fitzsimons, um, the late Green leader, whose argument and pamphlet about enough is still a really good read, um, the politics of enough. It's very difficult mm. for politicians to bring this in, but lobby groups and community groups can start talking about how do we live well. Do you remember that lecture, Enough? Yes, I did, actually. We hosted her at UC while she was touring around the country. In fact, she came and uh, stayed with us. I hadn't really known Jeanette, um, and I've not been a member of the Green Party, but um, I was working uh, with Tim Jackson, and she was interested mm. in coming to learn more mm. about... Um, that was a Quaker the lecture. no growth. That was a Quaker yes. lecture. Yeah, she came and stayed with us um, for three months when I was working in the UK and then did that series of lecture tours and the Quakers also published that work. And actually, interestingly, the Quakers were observers in the IPCC talks that we just had, which means that they get to speak about issues where they feel that there is a moral debate that needs to be had, that we don't have to respond to them as scientists, but it is interesting having their presence it makes i think it does make a difference to the a sense that, that there is a conscience of people who are thinking about these issues so i think enough is good if you actually have enough mm -hmm. and mo probably almost most new zealanders have enough though we don't have enough quite a few don't relative, but we <laughs> yeah. don't have enough to get on our, many people don't have enough to get on our society. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a difference between having enough to eat, which not everybody has, but also having, being able to contribute and live in your society. But, so we have to, a society that's talking about enough, don't we also have to talk about more economic equality. Yeah, and there's a very interesting debate to be had about, so we, do we achieve that by something like a basic income uh, or do we achieve that by basic services? And I think we still need a much more mature debate about this because Sweden, for example, has shown that it's not so much, yes, you all need a base income and we definitely need to raise the, mm. the lowest incomes in our community. But... Beyond a certain level, it's the spending and the social services that we use collectively, our education and our health and our transport, mm. that's more important than giving people mm. individually money. Right. Um, and and then the other debate is, well, just give people money and let them make choices. They can make choices that work best for their whanau. And I think that's a kind of a conversation we need to have. It may, you know, and the, may not be best for the larger community. Yeah, and it might not be the most efficient and effective way to use the money. I mean, if, uh, I, if I'm given a extra money, instead of buying that uh, $10,000 uh, hybrid car, I might buy a large four-wheel drive vehicle for 20000 Or just even, it's really expensive. If every single person has a hybrid car and three three times in the uh, week, it's just sitting up your drive. Well, um, how many? Or even, even more. Many, many, many families have two or three cars in their 
household. So the collective solutions can be very efficient, but we just need to have that debate. How are we going to do it? Um, um, what does our economy at... look like if we are not solely focused? And we've begun that debate with the well-being budgets. We just mm. need to extend it to make it mm. real and meaningful. Finland's done that to a large degree, especially in education. And they're not as rich as Norway or Sweden. They've been one of the relatively poorer countries in Scandinavia. And I think people always love to say, oh, look at Norway, you know, they're very good at preaching, but they've got all that oil. But actually, Norway started what it called its sovereign wealth fund, its decision to create investment for everyone, when it was very poor and before it discovered that it was fossil fuel rich as a country. And um, it's because of that, that it has the sovereign wealth fund. It's because it took that collective solution that meant that when there were collective benefits, everybody, everybody profited from them. Okay, if you've got a few minutes more... We have a few minutes. Would you like to talk about what you hope for um, in the next what do I uh, hope five for? or ten years? <laughs> yeah. In the next five or ten years, I, the first thing I really hope for is that I hope that um, New Zealand can develop a less polarised approach to climate, um, that we can actually work more cooperatively across urban and rural sectors. Um, I think there are opportunities for a lot of convergence around shared concern that building great big carbon sinks in rural communities is not helping anyone except maybe at the transport companies that want to continue to do their or shops or supermarkets that want to continue to do their stuff and plant trees but it's certainly not helping rural communities and it's not really helping anybody else overall so that's kind of one thing i think um if the Climate Commission is actually able to really uh, depoliticise some of the debate, I'm very disappointed to see the election debate starting to frame up already around the opposition offering to increase tax cuts and to reduce um, or take or, or reduce the sanctions on offshore oil and gas. I mean, these are debates that we had in the past, it would be good if we could see what conservative leadership and climate looks like. And one of the things I'm really interested to see is, well, Luxon actually um, contracted my colleague, Professor Tim Jackson, the degrowth economist, and Jonathan Porritt were advisors along, uh, on Air New Zealand's board. So it's not that he's not familiar with these debates. It seems like the opposition is too anxious to have this debate but we have many business leaders who are very aware of this it would be really great if we had some courage and some intellectual openness to actually start thinking about what a new economy would look like that is less growth focused and more um ho-ora or well-being focused okay well thanks a lot for coming on and i hope we can have that debate about growth and also about community uh, and climate change and inequality. Thank you very much for inviting me. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.